as a teenager, my very first memory of reading any book of the Bible in its entirety was the book of Job. While I had read verses and sections of the Bible before, I had not read an entire book of the Bible up until that moment. It was my senior year of high school in my advanced placement English class. And we were required over the course of that year to read several different books and create sort of thematic cards, including details about their author and overall structure and key plot points and some of the main themes. We were to summarize the book in a sentence on the first card. And to this day, I still remember what I wrote on that card as a 17-year-old boy. I wrote, quote, Nobody suffered more. Nobody deserved it less. The reality and tension of unmerited suffering that I had read in the book of Job shook me. Even at that young age, I had experienced enough bitter calamity and painful absurdity to know that suffering was a real part of life. We live in a world full of tragedy, suffering, and pain. And I find it somewhat ironic that we begin a very brief series on the book of Job on the 21st anniversary of one of those events that shook our country in terms of its tragedy. A laundry list of brokenness meets us or those we love with each passing year, it seems. We encounter disease, discouragement, discord, disorder, decay, death. And I know it was surprising at times and comes out of nowhere. But what I was not prepared for when I had read the book of Job as a 17-year-old is that it could come out of nowhere, that is suffering, and yet have absolutely no connection to a person's behavior or to a person's character. And I'm not alone, I think, in that sense of bewilderment that often accompanies our experiences of suffering. Everyone in our congregation, has or will meet with times of confusing and perplexing darkness, struggle, pain. We will sense a disorienting why start to rise up in our souls. And one of my responsibilities as one of your pastors is to so preach and to so pray that when the day comes, you don't curse God. But rather then buckling in fear or bawling in despair, you bow and worship. Blessing Him as your free and sovereign Father, no matter how intense the grief or how deep the pain that He brings into your life. And that's why the book of Job is in the Bible. An overview, quickly, to get us acclimated. We've already read that Job was a godly man who was greatly blessed in every imaginable way. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But then one day he loses everything, his fortune and his family. And we learn that this happened because God allowed Satan to bring this suffering upon Job. And Job doesn't know why it happens. He doesn't know why it happens throughout the book. We get the behind the scenes view. Job didn't have it. And we watch him struggle for 42 chapters suffering and arguing with friends about why all this is happening. 
He doesn't receive an answer, but he does receive a revelation of God at the end of the book. And Job responds in repentance and trust, and God restores his fortune in a greater measure than he had lost. Now, we will not be looking at the book of Job in in any great detail. We did that once, I recall, in a Sunday school class here at HBC, looking, I think, at the book of Job over the course of the year. And because of its repetitive nature, some of us who were there in that class, probably just me and my remaining sinfulness, felt like those 42 weeks were compromising its own unique form of suffering. But that's not the intention of this brief series. Rather, over the course of these four brief sermons, we're just going to survey the landscape. The first and last sermons are going to deal with the bookends. The first couple of chapters, the last couple of chapters. And the second and third sermons will cover the big picture themes that we encounter in the middle that are presented in the form of poetry. So we have narrative at the beginning, we have narrative at the end, and then in the middle we have poetry in the book of Job. So this morning we're just going to survey this day of devastation that came upon Job and the loss and the lament that he experienced on that day. Three points this morning. We're going to look at Job's life, Job's loss, and Job's lament. First of all, Job's life in the first five verses. Now, if you came into this room this morning like I came into that high school English class thinking that suffering is intended always as a punishment for evil, then you're going to be starkly surprised that Job is not a likely candidate for suffering. The first five verses of the book introduce us to a man, and don't be mistaken, Job is a real man. He's not just a figure of something. He's presented as a historical person from the land of Huz, who lived possibly during the time of Abraham, and he's treated as a historical person in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 14. So Job is a real man. But in these first five verses, Job is also presented chiefly as a righteous man. Job is described as a good and a godly man, according to verse 1, as blameless and upright. Now that doesn't mean he was sinless, but it does mean that he was beyond reproach in any area of his life. No one could lay a legitimate charge against Job that he was walking out of step with what he professed. They couldn't find any major fault in his life. Now surely they found sin and stumbling, but as far as the characteristic behavior of his life, it was blameless. He was upright. Not only was he a righteous man, but he's presented as a religious man. That is someone who was deeply devoted to God. He was a caring father and a husband. He had, we're told, seven sons and three daughters. He was also deeply devoted to God in that he turned from evil. An illustration is given in these opening verses where we're told that each of his children had their own home, which was highly unusual. And they were engaged in constant feasting. Their family was full of joy. And every time that his sons and daughters gathered for a feast, we're told that Job would get up early the next morning and offer burnt offerings for each one, just in case any of them in the midst of their feasting had sinned or cursed God in his heart. So Job is deeply devoted to his family. He's created an environment in which his children flourish with joy and Happiness, they love each other, they invite each other into their lives, they spend time together as a family. 
So Job is a righteous man, he's a religious man, but he's also a rich man. He's said to have been the greatest man in the East in verse 3. He was successful. He was wealthy. We've already seen that in part in that his own, each of his own children had their own home. He had huge numbers, we're told, of sheep and oxen and camels and servants. And we're told later in the book that he was just and he was compassionate in all of his dealings. Job is presented as a blameless and upright man. He's presented as someone who exemplifies the Proverbs. Someone whom God has blessed materially because he is so faithful spiritually. He's a righteous man. He's devoted to God. He's devoted to his family. He's devoted to honest work. And God has blessed him and prospered him in every conceivable and imaginable way. Job is the envy of the world. And in some ways, he should be the envy of us as God's people. We look at him and we say, Lord, I want to be like that. I want to be a man who is that devoted to you. I want to be a woman who is that devoted to you. I want to have a family that is characterized by that kind of godliness. I want my work to be blessed by you. And this is why the suffering that he experiences and that we're going to read about in just a moment is not a punishment for some measure of ungodliness that Job had in his life that was hidden, that we didn't see in these first five verses. Why are these first five verses here? Why is Job's life described the way it's described in these first five verses? So that we will take this lesson. Our experience of suffering in this life does not necessarily correlate to our sinfulness. The traditional religious answer to why are you suffering is, well, you must have done something wrong. Karma's coming to collect. And we don't believe in karma, but some religions do, namely Buddhism, Hinduism. The secular answer to the question of that is kind of the opposite of the religious answer. Well, there is no good reason. Just bad things happen sometimes. We know that a good God wouldn't allow this, so he must be either evil or not exist at all. But one of the main messages, dear ones, of the book of Job is that both the moralistic and the secular, the traditional and the nihilistic views of suffering are both wrong. They are too simplistic. They are just pat answers that can be stated in a sentence or two. Neither the author of Job nor Job himself will allow us to have such easy explanations for why suffering comes into our life. And neither will Jesus. Remember in John chapter 9, where some people come to Jesus regarding a man who was born blind. And they ask Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it because his, he sinned or his parents sinned? Something. Some sin happened that caused this, right? Jesus said, no. There was no sin. There was no sin in this man's life. There was no sin in his parents' life. There's no sin that caused this blindness. This blindness was given so that the glory of God might be seen in this man's life. And then he proceeds to heal the man of his blindness. So Jesus would agree with what we're talking about this morning, that suffering does not necessarily, necessarily correlate to our sinfulness. And brothers and sisters, I just want to remind us that unmerited suffering, the idea that suffering comes on those who don't necessarily deserve it, is at the heart of the Christian story. 
And it forms the essence of the gospel message that we believe. Suffering, by and large, in humanity is the result of our turning away from God. And therefore, it was the way through which God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, came and rescued us for himself. Jesus' experience of suffering in no way correlated to his sinfulness because Jesus was sinless. And yet he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as we just sang. We do not know all the reasons God allows evil and suffering into our lives, or at least why it feels so random and incongruous at times. But because of the gospel, we know what the reason isn't. It is not because he does not love us. It is not because he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge himself into the depths of suffering. Deeper than any suffering any human will ever experience. The worst any one human can ever suffer is an eternity in hell. And in Jesus Christ, he experienced the punishment of an eternity in hell for a multitude that no man can number. Jesus understands. He has been there and he assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear from our eyes. Is that your hope this morning? Is that where your faith is anchored? I may not know all the reasons for my suffering, but I know why I know one reason why for sure I'm not suffering, and that is not because God doesn't love me. That is because God does love me. I know that. I look at the cross and I say, there is a God who has skin in the game regarding this idea of suffering. It's not just an abstract concept for him. He entered into our suffering in the person of Christ, and it's Christ's experience of senseless suffering that gives shape to ours. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. Kids or young adults or older adults. And some suffering has thrown you off the Christian path. You've experienced some sort of random, senseless suffering. And you're like, if God was God, he would never allow me to go through that. Be careful. Satan is using that very thing in your life to get you to continue to doubt God. And if you haven't experienced some form of senseless suffering yet, it's coming. So right now, settle it in your heart and in your mind. God loves me. He has demonstrated it in the fact that he sent a suffering servant into the world to live in my place and die in my place and experience untold suffering, suffering that I will never experience if I come to him. Namely, in eternity in hell. I'll have my sins forgiven. I'll be given a righteousness that I didn't earn, worked out in the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And then all of my suffering takes on a new shape. It no longer brings about this resistance or call in my heart to curse God, but rather to submit, knowing that the suffering was given by a good father who has skin in the game regarding suffering. So that's Job's life. Secondly, Job's loss. We're going to read in just a moment the day of his calamity. It's going to be open season on God's servant. We begin by looking at verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. During one of these feast days that we're told about in the opening verses, when all ten of his children were gathered together in the home of the oldest brother, a messenger comes to Job 
and tells him of something tragic. Look at verse 14. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, 1,000 animals taken, stolen, unjustly, and all their attendant servants killed. Now look at verse 16. While he, that is the messenger, was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Another messenger comes and says, that the fire of God has come and the sheep are dead. 7,000 sheep and the servants that cared for them, all gone. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So another rebellious group comes in and steals his large 3,000 camel herd, and all of his servants are killed. All of Job's wealth, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, and all the servants who took care of them, gone in an instant, wiped out in an instant. Financial bankruptcy in an instant. 11,000 animals and very many servants, we're told in verse 2. Who knows how many? No doubt hundreds are gone. The greatest man in the East just became one of the poorest men in the East. But at least he has his family, right? Yes, he's lost his fortune, but his family is safe. They can always move. They can always rebuild until the next verse. Verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another messenger and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. The message comes that all of his children, all ten of them, were crushed to death in a house when a tornado caused the house to collapse. Evil men took livestock and killed their servants. Fire and wind, acts of God, killed his sheep and their servants and all ten of his children. Job's suffering and our suffering can take many different forms. Some of it's what we call acts of God, weather disasters. Others, it's evil people. Either way, Job experienced both. This very good man, someone who is devoted to God, honorable, hardworking, and loving, just lost everything, overtaken by a series of disasters that took his wealth and took his family from him. All Job's prosperity gone in one afternoon. What in the world is going on here? Why did this happen? We are told 
in verse 6. Beginning in verse 6 through verse 12, we find out the reason all of this happened. Let's read those verses together. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand. And touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hand is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you and I will never find the ultimate answers for our suffering by looking around us. We will never find the answers for our suffering just by looking horizontally. This world alone never answers the great questions of life. The answer is always found in heaven. That's what we learn here in chapter 1 of Job. The answer is found in heaven. And we have to be content trusting God with that answer. We will not often know it, but there is an answer. There is an answer for the suffering we experience, whether we know that answer or not. But we will not find that answer by looking horizontally. We will only find that answer in the behind-the-scenes story that God himself is writing. Now, we're told in these verses of a meeting that took place between God and Satan alongside other angels in some sort of heavenly council of sorts. And while we aren't given details of the conversation, we are given some insight into why Satan goes after Job. Look again at chapter 2, where we get a little more detail. Some of the details are repeated when Satan comes back after attacking Job's health, or sorry, after attacking Job's family and fortune and wanting to up the ante a little bit. But we're told in the end of verse 3, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So apparently, Satan incited God to destroy Job without cause. God is manifestly proud of his servant Job. He puts him forward as an example of steadfastness and devotedness and honor. He puts him on display before Satan as sort of a trophy that he delights in very much. And Job's fear of God has endeared God to Job in a very, very deep way way. But Satan is unimpressed. In fact, as the great accuser, Satan insinuates that Job has ulterior motives in serving God. He says in verse 9, does Job fear God for no reason? He says that the only reason Job fears God is to get rich. And that the only reason he serves God is because God has made his life easy. Who wouldn't serve a God like that? You serve Him? Blesses you with riches and prosperity? I'm in for that. You notice how the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is a satanic scheme? 
You would think it's not even on the surface of the Bible. And it's there, right there. Job, Satan insinuates, is just in this God thing for the benefits. As long as you keep bankrolling his lifestyle, he'll keep serving you. Satan argues, he doesn't serve you, and he doesn't love you. He serves and loves himself, and he does it. He uses you to do it. You're just an instrument, God. You're just a means to an end. I'll prove it to you and to these angels. Stop blessing him, and he'll drop you like a hot iron. Satan is saying that for Job, obeying God is just an exercise in self-love. Are you obeying God in that way? Is your obedience to God an exercise in self-love? In other words, you follow him as long as he doesn't disagree with you. And you don't do anything that would cause him, or It's almost like it's a business transaction with you and God, right? I do things for you, you bless me. As soon as you stop blessing me, I'm out. Hundreds of professing Christians do that. Hundreds of people down through the history of church history have done that. They're in it for the benefits. But once you remove the earthly benefits of serving God, people are revealed for who they are. And Job, Satan insinuates, would be revealed for who he is too. Now God could have said, in response to Satan's accusations, shut up. I don't need to prove anything to you or to anybody else. I know the heart of my servant Job. That's enough for me. He could have, could have said all that. But in this case, he didn't. So God grants Satan permission to afflict Job. First, in terms of his fortune and his family, and then as we read, his health. God has given Satan permission to touch everything that Job has, but not Job himself. And that's exactly what Satan does. Now, here's a lesson that I want us to draw from this. God is sovereign over all our suffering in this life. We see this in the way that God interacts with Satan. While Satan is granted limited power to cause pain, he has, great, he has to seek permission from God to afflict God's people. That is why Luther, Martin Luther, often called the, Satan God's devil. God sets the limits of Satan's power to cause pain. Our God is not frustrated by the power and subtlety of Satan. Satan cannot move an inch without the permission of God Almighty. Satan may be a lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, but brothers and sisters, he is a lion on a leash. And God reins him in or gives him slack according to his own sovereign purposes. And his sovereign purposes include using Satan's work to accomplish God's work. Did you notice that? In these two heavenly scenes where God handed Job over to Satan's power. When Satan had done his work of taking Job's wealth and taking Job's family, Job says in chapter 1 verse 21, The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Wait. 
No, Satan took away. Why is Job saying that the Lord did it? Job says that it was ultimately the Lord himself who took away his family and his wealth. And then lest anyone say that Job should not have attributed Satan's work to God, he writes, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. It is not sin to say that what Satan did, God ultimately did. Because God rules Satan. Similarly, in the second heavenly scene in chapter 2, God says to Satan, Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. And so Satan afflicts Job with loathsome sores. But again, in verse 10, Job says, Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? In other words, Job again goes all the way up to the sovereignty of God over Satan and says that his sickness is from God. Satan may have been the immediate cause, but ultimately it's from God's hand. And like we read at the end of verse 10, it's not a sin to say that a Satan-caused sickness is from the Lord. At the same time, although God directs everything in the world, He is not the immediate cause of evil. This is the wisdom that we're presented with here. As as we're told in Scripture, God does not afflict His children from His heart. He does not tempt us. Rather, He is sovereign over those afflictions and temptations and intends to use them in our lives for our good. So, brothers and sisters, let's be clear on this. In the book of Job, we do not have a dualistic view of the world. That is, where there are two equal and opposite forces of good and evil, contra Star Wars, right? In that view, life is truly a battlefield and a crapshoot because there's no single force in charge. It's all about bringing balance. So history is just a giant struggle between equally balanced forces as if there's no being powerful enough to carry out a coherent plan for world history. But that is not the God of the Bible. God is completely in charge. He is totally in control over Satan. But on the other hand, God is not the direct agent in suffering. In the language of Genesis 50-20, what others mean for evil, God intends for good. And that's exactly what God did in and through Satan's work with Job. And that's exactly what God did in and through Satan's work against Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Yes, was that a sin? You killed him. You crucified him. But he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You didn't move a hand that God didn't will to move. We also read in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is sovereign over the suffering of Job. He's sovereign over the suffering of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, he's sovereign over our suffering as well. So let us join with Job and join with Jesus and affirm with all our hearts the absolute sovereignty of God over evil. This has been a heritage staple for years and ever may it remain. Third, Job's lament. We've seen his life and his loss. Now we come to the response of Job to this life and to this loss. We read of his first response in verse 20 of chapter 1. Then Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked, 
I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I just want to say something before we get too much further into this. We are not Stoics. We don't just bite our lip in suffering. We cry. We wail. We lament. We hurt. This is entirely appropriate. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell upon his face. Job knows nothing of a flippant, insensitive, superficial, praise God, The magnificent of Job's worship is because of the great grief he experienced. Not because it replaced the grief. To be weak does not mean we are weak. To be weak in your frame does not mean you are weak in faith. The sobs of grief and the sobs of pain are not necessarily the signs of unbelief. Weeping and worship can coexist. We see it in Job right here. And we see it in the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Weeping and worship together. We know that Satan proved to be wrong. Job didn't curse God. Job did not curse God when he lost his wealth. He did not curse God when he lost his children. He did not curse God when he lost his health. He worshipped and he blessed God despite Satan continuing to up the ante. In chapter 1, Satan takes away Job's things, but leaves Job himself alone. In chapter 2, Satan sends Job painful diseases, but is told to spare his life. And according to Job 7.5, Job was covered with boil-like sores that opened and ran with pus and then got clogged with dirt and infested with worms. This is not a light rash, friends. This was a horrid thing from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And despite the insistence of his wife, Job again responds with trust in 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. So what do we learn here with this lesson I'm going to conclude? Suffering is a proving ground for our relationship with God. Suffering is a proving ground for our relationship with God. The big question hanging over the first two chapters of Job is does Job serve God for nothing? Is it God himself that Job cherishes or is it the earthly pleasures of family and possessions and health? We see that in Job's life, God is more valuable to him than family and possessions. And so the superior worth of God becomes evident to all of us. And the purpose of God in setting Job up was fulfilled. God was trying to reveal to Satan and to the universe that he is valuable to people in and of himself. It's a revelation of the value of God. God chooses to get an open victory over Satan for his own glory. He does this through a satanic test that will show that in the heart of Job, God himself is more highly valued than any possession or any family member or even his own life and health. Even if God had let Satan take Job's life, we know what Job would have said. He would have said, Psalm 63.3, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Take it. 
Happiness, brothers and sisters, is God being God to you. That's happiness in the Christian life. God being God to you. So stop praying, Lord, I want you to make my life better. Stop praying, Lord, I want you to make my husband or my wife better. I want my children to behave. I want a better job. Those are not bad prayers in and of themselves, but examine your heart. When you pray that way, you can often end up frustrated because God will not subordinate Himself to your agenda. Stop praying, Lord, I want you to do things for me. And start praying, Lord, I want you to be God to me. I want my life to be all about you. With my problems, I want to show the world that you're gloriously worthy of unquestioned trust all the time. Learn what it means to say with Paul, Philippians 1.20, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That is Christianity, except no counterfeits. Listen, dear ones, when God sends us a Job-like, inexplicable, random, devastating form of suffering, he doesn't want you to try and figure out why it happened. He doesn't want you to go on an immediate sin hunt in your life to find some cause for why you must be being disciplined. He doesn't want you to figure out what you should be learning from this trial. He wants you to collapse on him. The goal is not to immediately repent. The goal is not even immediately to grow. It's just to hold on to God. To continue to trust him and just not curse him. To know that his good heart is with you even when you can't trace his good hand. Our experience of suffering in this life will not leave us unchanged. That's a lesson we receive too. All suffering marks us. Some people reject God in their suffering. Others respond to God in their suffering. And at the heart of why people, who, why people disbelieve and believe and decline and grow in character, where God becomes less real to some and more real to others, is suffering. As one Puritan said, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. In fact, a great theme of the Bible itself is how God brings fullness of joy, not just despite suffering, but through suffering. There is a peculiar, rich, and poignant joy that comes to us only on the back end of a right response to our experiences of suffering. Are you down with that? Am I down with that? You say to God, God, I want more of your joy in my life, whatever it takes. You can pray that if you know God's heart for you. You know tomorrow he's not going to probably get you in a car accident. He might, but you, you don't have to fear that something, well, I've prayed that prayer now. Yeah, I'm probably going to the hospital next week. No, you can trust his heart in that, but you can pray, Lord, I know there are unique ways that you manifest yourself to your people in their suffering. And I'm not asking for suffering. We're not called to pray for that. We don't pray for suffering. But we pray that as God deems it wise to send it into our lives, that we would respond correctly to it. Adversity that's rightly received can lead us into a deeper, fuller experience of God's reality, of his love, of his grace, in a way that nothing else can 
Because here's the reality. We really don't know that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. Ask some brothers and sisters in this congregation who have suffered deeply and greatly. And they will tell you they've known Jesus in the midst of those griefs in ways that they would never otherwise. They would never ask God to go through it again, but they would never ask him to remove all the good things he's done in their life through it. And that's the way we are to respond, brothers and sisters. So let us learn both from Job's life that sometimes suffering comes in inexplicable ways and random ways that have absolutely nothing to do with our lives. Let us learn from Job's loss that God is sovereign over all of our suffering. And let us learn from Job's lament that it's appropriate to cry and that what God wants us to do is collapse on him, not to curse him, but to say, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Job. Thank you for the wisdom it imparts in terms of the ways that you deal with us as your people. Lord, many brothers and sisters in this congregation are weighed down with heavy things. Things that are burdening their hearts even now. And may this word this morning lighten their load. Knowing that you are sovereign over all of their suffering. And that you are working good purposes in and through it. And help all of us to respond in all of our trials and difficulties. With faith and trust and hope. Even while there are tears. Even while there's grief. Even while there's pain. And even while there's remaining questioning. May we trust your heart when we can't trace your hand, knowing that you are always good and intend good for us. You're not displeased with us necessarily. In fact, you may be, as we see in the life of Job here, maximally pleased with us, even as we're experiencing life's most difficult days. Teach us your ways, Lord. Instruct us in your commandments and help us to hold fast to you. For Christ's sake, we pray it.